This is your field is our office. I'm field agronomist for South Central Minnesota, Jay Zilski. And with me is my neighbor to the south and producer of the podcast, field agronomist Ashley Storby. How are you doing this morning, Ashley? Oh, Jay, I'm wonderful. I'm well rested. The husband and I had a little vacation over the weekend, and it's just that time of year where we can kind of recharge, and he's done with most of his field activities. So things are a little slower around the Storby household. So doing good. How are you, Jay? Ashley, I'm fantastic. I have to admit to everybody that I actually did play hooky on Friday. I (laughs) spent four and a half hours out in 100 plus degree heat index weather uh, working on that corn leaf removal trial (laughs) that I thought back in January, it sounded like a great idea. Uh, And then as you get to actually executing that, especially when I was removing leaves from above the ear, you know, at the ear leaf and below the ear was fine, but reaching up there, even for kind of a tall guy like me. So, uh, you know, I had escaped and went up to the cabin um, for a, an extra day over the weekend. And, and and listeners, you know, this truly is a cabin, okay? You, you all know me, okay? Do I look like a guy who has a fancy house that calls a cabin? No, it truly is a cabin. The ladies complain if they wash their hair in the shower up there that it's going to maybe kind of turn orange, okay? So, mm-hmm. so you get a little bit of perspective and, and we're not quite willing to fork out the money for a reverse osmosis machine uh, <laughs> as well but you know Ashley on the last podcast we talked about that you had to be like the coolest boy mom ever now you know I, I discovered something over the weekend you know I kind of follow a little bit on on Facebook and you know you were What's there? There are child labor laws, uh, Ashley. I, I saw the boys were washing roots. What's that about, anyhow? Oh, I had so much fun with that, Jay. So, you know, the kids go to daycare during the day. I come home and we'll mess around in the yard. And I had a bunch of roots that I had dug. I had some corn rootworm feeding that I wanted to get a better look at. And my favorite part is when I can bring my work and my kids together in a fun way. So they were helping me wash off roots and taking, and they even learned something. So I'm going to take advantage of that free labor as much as I can, Jay. So absolutely. So how much credit did they get per route towards a purchase of that dirt bike that she that they that that the kid thought he got for his fifth birthday? That's kind of that's going to be a lot of roots. There you go. Well, Ashley, uh, you know, enough fun and games here. I suppose we probably ought to get down to the serious topic of of agronomy because there certainly is a lot to talk about, Ashley. You made reference to to digging roots. Maybe you can share, you know, what you're seeing from the field. Um, You know, I know in particular it's it's, uh, some things with extended diapause with corn rootworm and then anything else. And I'll kind of, uh, you know, share with you what we're uh, in our listeners, what um, I'm seeing going on in my area before we bring our guests on. Oh, absolutely. Thanks, Jay. So the theme of my summer in in my area has evolved into being corn rootworm. We remain to have really minimal disease pressure. So as we're looking at corn development in the field, looking for any obstacles to um, yield potential rootworms has has really come front of mind. Um, I want to say kind of some bullet that with, we do have our fungicide um, decision-making tool available to some acres in our area this year as a demo through our granular insights platform. And we are starting to see some, what we call spray now recommendations. Um, I had one pop up in Albert Lee and then I see to the far east um, and North Pine Island area, we had some trigger as a spray now. So that means that the environmental conditions um, recorded by our, our, um, 
our system that feeds weather information into our granular insights platform have overlapped with um, the timing of appropriate fungicide timing and those particular planting dates and hybrids. So that's something of interest, but in my area, I haven't seen any disease pressure. Um, but back to the corn rootworm pressure in our area this year on the west side of 35, as I get into my Blue Earth County, uh, Faribault, Wasika, uh, Western Freeboard, I have seen evidence of extended diapause uh, rootworm feeding in first year corn. And some of that has been pretty significant. So if you're familiar with the nodal injury scale, some of that has been nearing a three, which means three of those nodal, those three nodal rings have been pruned within an inch and a half of the main stock there. So very significant feeding in some of those instances. And then J.I. have corn on corn fields with significant feeding as well. Um, the most that I've seen has been three year or plus corn on corn. Um, and as you walk those fields and you're swatting um, corn rootworm beetles last week, we seem to be at peak emergence last week from my perspective. Those were Westerns, the um, black and yellow uh, rootworm beetles. And really differentiated between whether it's corn on corn or, or corn on soybeans, what we're seeing. And it's not every field, you know, management is really important. Historical management is really affecting those populations, um, but it's certainly a high rootworm pressure year. Um, the other thing to be cognizant of for my area is as I get east of 35, we really dry off and we've missed a lot of rains in that uh, Mauer County area. So we'll be hoping for rain for those guys. Um, but what are you seeing, Jay? Well, Ashley, uh, you know, kind of uh, <clears throat> echoing some of your observations as far as um, extended diapause. I think one of the things that we've been seeing <clears throat> in our area, first year corn extended diapause, we know where we've been plant planting traded products, fully traded for above and, and below ground protection. You know, we haven't seen significant feeding in those situations. It's always been where, you know, I think folks have kind of been, we kind of had a honeymoon here for a number of years where that <clears throat> we hadn't had the diapause issues. People are going to a higher and higher percentage of doubles uh, AM products for above ground protection. And now <clears throat> this is the year, you know, we had some indications back in 2021 of some adult beetle populations. And I think, you know, those levels continue to build. And, and so, you know, 21 was an indicator of what we should potentially expect this year in that rotated situation. So <clears throat> for listeners, as, as I hear that, what they're seeing this year, uh, in their, uh, you know, rotated corn in 2023, that's going to be, you know, harbinger potentially things in 2025. Now, you mentioned walking some fields that were longer term corn on corn, seeing a lot of uh, adult beetles. And so what have you been seeing in those situations as far as uh, root feeding or any root injury on those plant on those situations? Yeah, um, I have I have a field, um, Mauer County area, long-term corn on corn, at least 10 years, and they have been employing the series of best management practices, foliar insecticide, <laughs> infro uh, insecticide traded products um, on a farm that really needs corn and doesn't need soybeans. So some rotation limitations there. And what, what we observed was Feeding, scarring that I, I'm not um, savvy enough to be able to score. So it wasn't that significant to be able to score it, but it was enough to know we do have a looming um, population building. And particularly in a dry year, as you get over east, we don't want to give up any of that root mass. And we know that that has a um, compounding effect on what that rootworm feeding does to yield potential. Um, so that is an example of a, a farm that's been really well managed in terms of they know their corn and corn, they're throwing um, lots of tools at the rootworm. I have another example, three years corn on corn, 
um, less management tactics employed, but I think in the span of those three years, it wasn't expected they would have quite the high populations that they did, um, and it caught up to them this year. And that was the example that was, I would say, almost a three, um, if you know, rough shod scoring on the noodle injury scale um, system there. So it's been really pocketed. I'll, I can walk a lot of fields that minimal pressure, dig roots and minimal. So the, I have the most exposure with the extended diapause, um, more fields that came evident after those wind events than I do with the corn on corn. So that would be my report, Jay. And if that, it's a good report, Ashley. And I think that's one of the things I've seen is, is that where we've had these, you mentioned that out, you called it out. Uh, a year ago, I saw some same similar things where uh, maybe it's been, you know, five, six, eight, <clears throat> ten years of continuous corn where populations are just so high that, you know, potentially even overwhelms the traits and even some of those measures as well. So, you know, <clears throat> the challenge always is, well, look at planting another crop on that piece of ground. Um, so, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think one of our future uh, podcasts here, perhaps the next one, we might have um, Bruce Potter, some others on that uh, from the U of M to talk some about managing corn rootworm and such going forward. And um, before we move on, I think the only other thing that I would mention uh, <clears throat> noteworthy from my area is uh, the fact that, uh, you know, everybody does know that uh, soybean aphids have this uncanny ability to know when farm fest uh, is about to occur, and that's this week. And so, you know, after after several year uh, reprieve as far as much for so, uh, soybean aphid pressure, um, we began to see last week some once after after some of the temperatures cooled off. There's possibly some signs of of aphid populations building. Historically, it's been this week and next. Oftentimes, where we reach those, um, you know threshold levels, those action thresholds. I always got to remind listeners that the 250 aphid per plant is an action threshold. It's not when injury begins or yield loss begins, because a lot of times guys will be in a field and they see, you know, 100, 150 aphids per plant. And say, oh boy, we got to pull the trigger cook before they get to 250. So I think that's an important uh, distinction here. And I think, you know, folks are a little more enthusiastic about walking their fields Ashley, because we'd been quite dry, and then last uh, Wednesday and Thursday, uh, we got some much welcomed rain, some unwelcomed hail, and some strong winds in situations um, as well that may have exposed some things with um, extended diapause as well. And I think one of the messages that I've been communicating with our sales reps, and also I just communicate that to uh, farmers as well, as you're walking those fields, whether it be corn or beans, you know, bring a shovel with, start digging roots and looking at the plants. Start digging roots in, in soybean fields looking for uh, soybean cyst nematode. Start digging roots in corn uh, looking for corn rootworm uh, feeding injury. And, and it is interesting, and then I will move on, I promise. <laughs> you made reference to seeing a, a three root for as far as that root node injury scale. And <clears throat> had some samples that our strategic account manager, Dave Farr, had dug from a field. And, you know, he had one that was an obvious three. And, and yet there were some other plants out there that didn't have nearly as much feeding. And so it, it can be variable within a field. And, you know, don't just dig a root or two and say, well, looks like things are good here. We're good to go. Um, and also be making observations of those um, adult beetles. But, uh, Ashley, maybe have you just quickly, before we move on to our guest, he's waiting patiently. Um, to talk about, uh, maybe you can just kind of share some alley wises 
observations from our last podcast when we talked about tar spot and maybe give the latest information. Um, I promise that I will send out this week the latest um, tar spot map uh, from Pioneer. But Ashley, maybe you can summarize her points quick before we get on to our guest. Absolutely. So we reached out to Allie Wise, previous field agronomist, now territory manager within Pioneer in southeast Minnesota um, on our last episode because we really wanted to get a perspective of an area that has recurrently had high tar spot pressure when the environment was conducive. So as we get closer to that eastern side of the state towards the river coming from Wisconsin, northeast Iowa, um, that has been a pocket of high of elevated tar spot pressure um, over the past couple of years compared to the as we move west towards where Jay and I sit, I-35 and west. Uh, so Allie's feedback was terrific. She noted that the environmental conditions have not been conducive, a little too warm, a little too dry. And we haven't seen significant amount of tar spot in her area. She said they've been able to find it in some areas, but it hasn't been progressing. So we know that we can we can see the disease onset and then it can stall in the face of unfavorable environmental conditions, which we have had. Um, so in review, tar spot would prefer temperatures between 60 to 70 degrees, high relative humidity. And we haven't had that. It's been uncomfortable. Jay's been out there stripping plants of leaves in 100 plus degree temperature. So we we haven't had those conditions that could change. But the, the positive part is, as we've taken this crop further into reproductive stages, oh, a lot of the crop this week should be, I would guess, late blister, early R3 milk stage. We're continuing to, to build yield and then reduce the um, downside potential um, of a disease occurrence in terms of how much yield it can take from us. Um, and, and we had the discussion of when we would cut off a fungicide application in corn. And our understanding right now is if we get through the end of R3, it would have to be pretty darn bad on a susceptible hybrid with good environmental conditions for tar spot lingering or looming um, for us to pull the trigger. So we're getting to that, that point where we wouldn't necessarily warrant a fungicide application. Um, so Jay, that's my, my summary of Allie's conversation. So Excellent recap, Ashley. And, uh, you know, I think, again, last year we did see quite a bit of tar spot begin to show up in August, early uh, September. And so we'll have to see what what this year holds in store. I know last year, uh, second week of August, I went over to Rochester on a regular basis uh, for a week there. And every morning I could see, you know, the, you know, inversion-like conditions that in the month of June, we said this is going to be perfect for dicamba moving. But as I saw that fog uh, settle in based on topography, some low-lying areas and such, I was thinking, gosh, this could be perfect for tar spot. And sure enough, we saw some of that a year ago. So as we get, you know, longer nights, cooler temperatures um, overnight, we'll have to see what we find um, there, Ashley. So appreciate the update. But, uh, you know, Ashley, tomorrow's the 1st of August. And one of the things I always uh, tell uh, farmers through my agronomy updates and in person is that usually August is the month that the wheels fall off of the soybean crop. Okay? There's fields that look perfectly clean for weeds and all of a sudden, Son of a gun, this was looking good a week ago. Now we see some tall water hemp uh, peeking up above the crop. Or maybe even more importantly, but maybe at times not as visual, becomes some of the late season soybean diseases, whether it be white mold, SDS, or, or brown stem rot. And now there's another one to add to the list, and that's uh, red crown rot in soybeans. And uh, 
you know, our guest today, the short bald agronomist, Matt Montgomery, he was with us earlier in the season, uh, can give us an, an update on, on red crown rot. But maybe before we do that, uh, Matt, we always hear people asking us about, okay, what are you hearing from your colleagues to the south and east? So may, maybe just give us a little bit of a, a background or an update. I know, I think earlier on, you were talking about how dry you were, but I think you had some rains there. Was that either end of June or early July, but that also came with some strong winds. So um, I'll let you kind of share your observations. Yeah, thank and thank you again for inviting me back. It, it's always fun to be with you guys. So no, um, as far as things in Illinois, um, you're right. We we were really dry. You may remember, some of the listeners may remember, we were headed towards an 88-12 style drought um, in this part of the world. And then in right around the 4th of July, we got rains and uh, and actually actually they came in in kind of a timely fashion and and probably helped at least stop or slow down the bleeding might be a good way to say it. That did come with wind, like what you were saying, Jay. Um, now down my way, it was more isolated tornadoes and maybe a few cases of straight lines. You go to the territory, actually the district to the north of us, which would be Again, if you think about that central bulge in the state of Illinois along the Mississippi, and you think about maybe like a 30-mile stretch up that direction, that district did see a derecho event like what they saw in Iowa. Um, kind of had the same kind of impact, so there were pictures floating around of some places in, in that kind of western part of Illinois, kind of north and west of me, of uh, quite a bit of elevator capacity knocked out um, for the season, and and that kind of changes changes how harvest is going to go for some folks. Um, so yeah, it came with some wind. I would say we've been dry since then. Um, in a lot of ways, we've got maybe some scattered showers. And, and I think I, I think we aren't going to see 88-12 style drought, but the, the corn crop is going to feel a little bit uglier than, than what you would want, I think. I think we'll see some yield hits. Um, and again, you, you guys would appreciate this. I think about like Quincy area um, right after that rain went out and looked at sh somewhat for, would be for us shorter season hybrids and they had maybe an inch and a half of silk out and they'd blown through all the pollens. So I think oh. I, I think this story, you know, we, we really did. It, it, it's not to be dram dramatic. We got to the 11th hour and suddenly something came in that kind of saved us. But that doesn't mean, like a good drama, it doesn't mean that there wasn't some chaos and and wounding that came before that. So I think I think we're going to feel a, a little bit of that hit from the dry weather we went through, but it could have been a lot for worse. That's a long way of answering the question. You can't tell I'm an agronomist, can you, Jay and Ashley? We we answered in a long, long fashion. <laughs> so Matt, you know what what you're describing is your your condition crop condition, crop stage, sounds quite similar to where we have been a hit here in South Central Minnesota and that rain a week ago that, you know, you know my comments were it, it provided some relief to a crop that was in decline, that if for yeah. the most part, uh, I, I do believe that, you know, uh, pollination um, occurred in, in under decent conditions. Again, that plant has a way of avoiding some of the peak stress. Granted, we have some situations where, you know, fields were looking super tough where that would have been impacted. Uh, my point 
<laughs> in this long-winded reply is the fact that, you know, I've been sharing with guys, now it will be interesting to see, um, okay, so pollination likely has been successful. Now it's a matter, okay, how much tip back are we going to see? Yeah. And, and so yeah. maybe, you know, based on what, what you um, are seeing, you can kind of share what you've seen thus far. And granted, we're, you know, we're, we're two states away, but maybe we can still learn something yeah. from what you saw. I think it is uncanny how similar the stories have been. And I noticed that, I, I know just background, you guys send a little bit of information out to your guests to kind of give them an idea about what's happening in your part of the world. And that struck me, Jay, was just the story that you were relaying sounded like just a few weeks ago, the story that we were relaying. I, I do think this last week we've been in the, the 90s, that 100 degree weather that you were talking about stripping leaves away in. If it was hard on Jay, it was hard on the crop. And it it was uh, it, there's some pretty good evidence of it aborting back some kernels, and so we do see some tip back, and 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 unfortunately, I think that's the other part of the story. Again, could have been a lot worse, but probably going to be an, an okay to good crop. It, it's definitely not going to be a great to excellent crop, right? Um, and now we get to prove me wrong, and if I'm wrong, that's great, and I'll be very happy that I missed it. So. <laughs> It's okay. To, it's okay for us to be wrong if we're if we're That's being right. a little conservative. I, I I'd rather be wrong on that side. Something. Well, this is maybe an extreme version of of that concept, but something we've been thinking about as we've had this stress, uh, moisture stress around pollination time, and leading up to pollination, and we've gotten element of a, a reprieve here and there, um, depending on the geography. Yeah, uh, and, and who got rains. But something that that caught our eyes, uh, we were reading an article that mentioned that uh, eardrop from from a, a weak shank can be triggered by stress early in in pollination during that stage of reproductive development, followed by good grain fill conditions. And so I, I hate to I hate to comment on something that could yeah. be really negative, but that is something that we're watching um matt and jay for our area i know a gentleman that i work with down this way um sent me a video over the weekend that would kind of lend itself towards that story that you're relaying ashley and you could tell that shank was starting to go and those ears were tipping down so i i do think that there is that possibility out there down this way mm. and and for management of of that something that that we might caution listeners if we do get in that scenario is It'll be different by planting date, by by hybrid um, silking date relative to the the stress that we've incurred. But timely harvest, not letting yeah. that that corn maybe dry all the way down as you might, or taking a little higher grain moisture might be appropriate. But we'll we'll keep everyone posted on our observations there. Management and the good management actually comes into play there at the tail end, doesn't it? I mean, that's yeah. the in a situation like what we're going into. Yeah. So on to on to our main topic today that that we're excited to educate our listeners on. Uh, Jay had mentioned in his teaser uh, that he has a big list of how the the wheels fall off the soybean crop as we get into um, August. You know, first you mentioned breakthroughs in water hemp or other weeds as we get into August, but also white mold, brown stem rot, sun dust syndrome. And now what we're here to talk about today, Matt, is that folks in your area have another one to add to the list, and that's called red crown rot. What can you tell our listeners about this new disease in soybeans? Yeah, well, the first thing I probably could tell you is that it it can be exceptionally deadly um, when it comes to yield. Um, so that it, 
I would say that a lot of people would feel like 20, 30 percent. Some of our farm managers would say in the worst fields, they feel like 40 percent yield hits um, to to put a real score, scary story out there, because that's what you do when you talk about a new disease is you talk about the extreme. But we did have a grower last year who had kind of historic 60 bushel averages and he went down to 16 bushel in that field. So one six, I keep underlining that so that people actually hear me right i'm not saying saying anything else but it's one six sixteen bushel that it actually went down to wow that that is that is a really impactful number um what a drastic yield reduction yeah. um and can you tell us how long have have you been observing red crown rod in the area yeah, so so um, the history of red crown rot in the Midwest, um, it seems like about 2018, it was identified in Pike County, Illinois, which again is part of the area that I serve, kind of that southern bulge in the state of Illinois along the Mississippi. Um, some real question marks about how did it actually get here, but it did appear and then kind of just lingered and, and kind of was an interesting find for a couple years. But two years ago, really seemed to take off in that part of the world. Um, it really started to build up ahead of steam. And uh, and then in 2022, even got worse to the point that we have people in this part of the world, um, in that area that's kind of the epicenter for this new disease that's stretching out from there. Um, that We have people in that part of the world who absolutely refuse to be, do beans now, who told us mm. last year, I'm done until we have solutions. Um, because they just can't take that kind of hit. Yeah. Well, that's pretty. Uh, that's pretty amazing, Matt. That it can be quite that, quite that devastating. And you know, we see that sometimes. Maybe not so much with the white mold or some of these others. So we we see that sometimes where we have iron deficiency chlorosis, not necessarily a disease, but we say, you know what? Yeah. Maybe it's best to plant a crop other than beans on this field. And then you know, Matt, what happens is then when guys go ahead and plant beans on that field, anyhow. Then they have their best beans ever, and they say, I yeah. thought you told me never to raise beans on it. You know? <laughs> well, I'm guessing some of those soils too, Jay, and I don't, uh, you know, I, I don't claim to know the ins and outs of of how things work up in your part of the world, but I'm guessing some of those soils that you get worried about that on also probably, would it be fair to say they struggle just a little bit as far as being prime corn ground or something like that? Mm -hmm. That's that's kind of where we are for this this story is. There, these are some rougher clay hillsides in that part of the world where this started. Um, this is this is basically parts of Missouri that have been brought over and dropped in Illinois, um, you know, and so so it, it, it's a it's a tougher area. And really, a lot of those people would trend towards that saying that they have in Missouri, where some of those folks in Missouri will talk about we raise beans so we can afford to raise corn. You know, it just it's a tougher <laughs> environment it's a tougher environment for corn production. And so to say that you're gonna move all the way over to corn, you can see how for some people, at least that's not a, a real great answer to solving this issue. Mm -hmm. So Matt, you're saying how it was, you know, first discovered in Illinois in 2018. And my understanding is that it's, you know, red crown rot is not, uh, okay, it, it's new to soybeans, but this pathogen has been out there in, in the past affecting other crops, is that correct? Yeah, so uh, originally documented as a disease in peanuts out east and in the southeast. And then in, I think it was actually about 72 documented moving over to beans. 
And so it, it definitely some familiarity with peanuts and there are some management strategies that you know we're probably exploring when it comes to to how they manage it in peanuts. But I suppose I suppose Jay and Ashley, I should at some point talk about what this thing looks like just so we can differentiate it from some of the that other list that Jay just mentioned as, as we set things up here. Oh, absolutely. And our understanding is that it looks somewhat like sudden death syndrome, which our listeners would would be well familiar with. Can you make some comparisons and contrast there? Yeah, so it, it looks like it, there are some comparisons um, as far as symptoms on the plant. There's also some rough hold them loosely comparisons with how it the life cycle kind of works, you know, mm -hmm. so the disease cycle kind of works for this thing. Hold that loosely because it's not a perfect match. But as far as symptoms go, it, there are symptoms that look a lot like SDS. It's that yellowing and browning between the veins with the veins staying green. Maybe early on noticing some kind of just amorphous yellow blotches on the leaf, right, without sharp edges. You guys kind of know what we're looking for there. A lot of your listeners do for what we see with SDS. Um, sometimes we see that, sometimes maybe not quite those symptoms that appear, sometimes just real rapid plant death. That's probably one of the things that's a real big deal with this one is that it's an out and out root rot. And so it's rapid death of the plant, even more rapid, I would say, than what sudden death actually takes a plant. Mm. And, and when that plant dies, because it's a root rot, the leaves um, on SDS will fall away, right? And the petioles, right? The leaf stems stay attached. With this disease, it dies so fast, everything just remains attached. So you just have this wilted dead plant um, with the leaves still attached. And early on, because of that rapid death, I've noticed occasionally that you guys know how, like with SDS, you have this real green, you know, this shiny green sheen on those veins. Sometimes with this disease, it almost seems like, not in every case, but in a lot of cases, that plant dies so fast. Instead, that nice green sheen on those veins, that stuff that stays green, it almost has that grain off of something that's just dried up. And so mm -hmm. a little bit more of a grayed off green that I sometimes notice. That's maybe a little toward the end. Um, that, you know, of course, um, other things, you know, we talked about above ground symptoms we should probably mention those below ground symptoms, Ashley. And that mm -hmm. is that if you look at that lower part of the plant, sometimes it's accompanied by this bright red discoloration of the lower stem. And the real defining way to, to identify it as red crown rot are these little, think about it being a couple pinhead heads wide, um, you know, or pencil points wide, these little red to orange balls that form later all over the root right around the soil line. So think about maybe an inch and a half above the soil line, inch and a half below the soil line that it it gets these little red fruiting structures um, that that are supposed to fill with spores. Um, and, and that's kind of a real defining way to identify this in the field. You dig up multiple plants because it's not gonna appear on every one. Mm. If it's dry like it is this year, it's a lot harder to see that left and right, you have to really get the glasses out, look close to spot them. But if, if that's the culprit, after a while, you should be able to see those fruiting structures. 
So Matt, um, you answered the question I had as I yeah. as I've been reading about Red Crown Rod, and that was was going to be you know how does a person differentiate between it and Rhizoctonia root rot, and it really comes down to those orange balls that you described yeah. uh, along the so- soil line. And and what's interesting about what you say and and is that you know thus far there hasn't been any documented red. Uh, red crown rot in, in soybeans in Minnesota, or I'm not so certain about Iowa. But what's interesting is a couple of years ago, I happened to be in a field in the area and it looked like SDS. But, you know, sometimes you'll see something that's like in the back of your mind, it's like, this just doesn't yeah. quite feel right. And so I'm really curious in, you know, like a typical agronomist, unfortunately, it's not in beans this year. I wish it was in beans. Now that I know this, I'll have to wait till next year. <laughs> but, but this grower doesn't have it in soybeans this year, but it just really makes me wonder. It's like, is that what I was looking at, even though, you know, we haven't had any documented yeah. in the state yet? Mm-hmm. Gee, I think that's a really great point is that if you're used to looking at SDS, there's just something about this that that sixth sense goes off and you go, now, wait a minute, there's there's just something that looks off here that doesn't look quite right. That's kind of been my experience as you look. There's just mm. something that doesn't feel right for SDS. Then you start doing a little bit more exploration and and there you find it. So, And Matt, one of the things when SDS was first coming into Minnesota, by the way, thank you folks in Illinois for sending it our way, by the way. <laughs> Uh, I know I can we add like that to, to the list. We like to I think share we'd the like love. To return the favor here somewhere along the line, Matt. Um, but when you know, I, I would joke with farmers, you know, joking but serious that you know that that with SDS, a lot of times the above ground symptoms might look like you know BSR. And I would yeah. joke with them and say, and you know, a really lucky guy might actually have both in his field. And, and so, and, and and so, my my question is, you know, do you see? all three of these or both of these diseases in in the same field with uh, red crown rot? I think that's a really good point. It's not like this is an exclusive disease. It, it will sometimes appear with multiple diseases. Last year, we had SDS and fields with it. I'm absolutely convinced this year we have Phytophthora, late season Phytophthora popping up in some of these places as well, mm-hmm. which is making it really interesting to try and find the red crown because you're pretty sure you've found Phytophthora. And then you're kind of picking through this mess of dead plants, trying to find those that have the symptoms. So, yes, I think you can kind of see this complex with some other things. Mm, That can make disease identification so challenging. I really Really appreciate that within our organization, we can take samples and send them to the diagnostic lab. I've got some some samples waiting for um, diagnosis that I I sent to our lab the other day. And I, I really appreciate that because sometimes these these disease symptoms can present themselves in such a confusing way when you get multiple together. Now, I would like, Matt, if you could share with our listeners um, some contents, context on environmental conditions. And I'd like to note um, that, so I grew up in Fulton County, Illinois, so West Central yep. Illinois. And uh, so right across the river there. from where I grew up, Ashley, I got to <laughs> so put cool. that plug out there. You were Fulton, I was Mason. So yeah, you we were over by Havana, right? Yeah. 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 Yep. So we were, we were neighbors. We played each other in sports, you know, if you would have been in school <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> so then I took off and went down to Florida for part of my um, college experience. And in that area, there was lots of armadillos and, you know, just a really different environment. Well, my dad told me the other day that 
we've started to see some armadillos in yeah. Illinois. And I thought, wow, isn't that interesting to, if it's the armadillo adapting or if maybe our climate's a little different. Um, so with that, um, Matt, could you share with us environmental conditions conducive to red crown rot when, what, what things have to align? Yeah, so I want to underline that, yes, armadillos are in the area. I just will make sure I agree with that here and, <laughs> and verify that statement, Ashley. But um, yeah, as far as as far as conditions, you remember I said hold loosely to the SDS kind of pattern. So the infection of this thing actually happens earlier in the season in like the first three to four weeks of the plant's life. And it's going to want moisture kind of the way SDS does. Now that begins to crack a little bit because it's actually a little warmer soil conditions. You know, we think about SDS kind of maybe cooler, right? Wet kind of promoting that just a little bit. Um, but but the warm wet really gets SDS going. It gets, I'm sorry, red crown rot going. And, uh, and then it kind of infects throughout the season. And then late season results in those symptoms. And, and this is probably a little earlier than normal for me to be running into it. So I've seen it here the last two weeks. Probably it was it was very late July um, before I had my first field that I felt like I'd seen it in. We can see it a little bit earlier now. Mm. So Matt, um, you know, one of the things in, we've tended to see over the years, and, and you draw some comparisons to SDS, that the critical thing being early in the season, infection occurs, yep. but it's tend to be favored more by warmer soil conditions than than colder soil conditions. And and then, you know, here it always seems like it's you really don't notice anything to get in the month of August. And yep. then we get to the seed fill stages is when, you know, I, I, I've read, especially if you happen to get a shot of rain, that then all of a sudden you get water moving in the plant, yeah. moving these toxins up. So uh, again, kind of like, you know, Ashley's reference to, you know, always trying to think ahead about what could potentially happen when she was talking about eardrop in corn. But this is one of those things like, oh, we're also relieved we got the shot of rain now. It's like, oh, geez, <laughs> now are we going to see this infusion <laughs> as, you know, as we're a little bit ahead of seed fill, but we're not far away. So yep. is that how uh, red crown rod is as well then? So, so I do think there's a toxin. I think if you read some of the old compendiums, there's a little question as to whether there's a toxin or not. I think that actually is a little bit more verified now that Red Crown is producing a toxin kind of, kind of not the same one that sudden death would, right? But it, a toxin that's resulting in those same leaf symptoms. Now, as far as whether late season stress is what triggers it, I think this is where, again, we get a little wobbly on those comparisons with SDS. I'm not sure if we have enough experience that we're absolutely for sure what triggers those symptoms to come. You know, we've been under dry stress here, and that definitely is accelerating the the appearance of these symptoms. So I'm sure stress has a component. Um, does rainfall cause the toxins to move faster? We haven't really had a lot of that here. So it makes you wonder if that's really moving stuff around or not. Um, you know, we've been really, really dry in this area that I'm talking about in Pike County, and yet we still have a lot of symptom development. Um, and, and honestly, you remember me talking about the rainfall in the spring. We really only had one very brief wet period in the spring, and yet we have the disease showing up. So I, I think... As would happen with a new disease, there are a lot of unknowns and a lot of learning that's going on right now. For some darn reason, Matt, I always tell farmers, the diseases or insects don't always read the textbook. 
That's and they don't they don't know when they are aren't supposed to show it's, up. It's actually a good example because we we would have told people last year, hey, planning later. That's absolutely one of your best strategies. Some of the worst fields we had for Red Crown Rot last year were late planted fields. And wow. so, I mean, textbook had said late plant, and yet fields fell apart that were late planted. Um, I, I would say a variety of tillage practices um, across companies, across herbicide traits. So it, it doesn't seem like there's one easy thing that you can peg as far as where it's appearing. It, it makes me very appreciative of of someone like you, Matt, who is so detailed oriented and and does such a good job collecting information and conveying that to farmers and others that it it it's assur it's assuring to me that you're in the seat here in this area helping us understand how to manage this disease. So tell me for right now, as you're communicating with farmers in your area, what would be your management recommendations for this disease? Yeah. Uh, that that's a that is a tough one to be very honest because we don't have anything that we have data that we can hang our hat on. So I mean, it's at the moment it's really generic stuff that feels very uncomfortable to say, right? You know, like drainage improvements. Well, some of these clay hillsides, that's never going to happen, right? Um, this disease may initially appear in the draw or in the wet area of the field or a clay area of the field and stretch out from there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, reducing the additional weed pressure in the field. So maybe that you're reducing the chance for a green bridge. That's really a shot in the dark, right? Um, that, trying to manage soybean cyst nematode because we know in peanuts that nematodes kind of pair up with this thing and maybe help it become just a little bit more severe. But you can appreciate why that feels really thin. It, we really are at a place in this part of the world where the real guaranteed management, best management practices are, are really scant and we have some work to do. And so we're trying to do some of that, Ashley, to come up with answers. You know, I was thinking, Matt, what you had mentioned about drawing some similarities with sun death syndrome and one of our coaching um, in our areas, if we are planning into cool soils uh, that we would want some extra protection, a, a variety with good inherent tolerance and then yeah. paired with a, a seed treatment like Alevo. Would you would you expect that planting early in cooler soils in your area will be helpful for management for this disease? Yeah, unfortunately, I go back to that textbook that the disease just completely, you know, wrecked the recommendation But that old textbook would say actually later and that you don't want earlier. So I, I really don't know that I can recommend at this point a planning date that's that's our best management practice, you know, a period on the calendar that we can be better assured to avoid it. And and Ashley, you mentioned um, something about like picking out good varieties and good seed treatment. I'll just kind of toss this out there. That's part of what we're trying to work on at the moment is that we know in peanuts, this is really managed through variety. Um, we know that the nematode management comes into play and then fungicide, you know, early on, like in stuff comes into play. And so we're trying to think about varietal things. What do we have there? Um, you know, nematode wise, we definitely have some work to figure out if there's a connection point there. What do we need to do for seed treatments? So Matt, any, so we know there isn't any specific resistance to red crown rot as far as right. soybean varieties but I, i'm assuming you are observing some differences 
out there and, and not necessarily to to share any yeah. specific varieties no. but are do you see some differences among varieties uh, differences as far as a uh, nematode resistance source i guess is also what i was wondering yeah so that what what we've done at this point jay is that we encourage the pioneer product development team to get an impact plot located basically a quarter mile over the timber line from where this thing initially popped up and those guys planned on having this thing go to corn and they left a section for us that we felt like was exceptionally hot, put it to beans, and we have an impact plot there. And you know, our, our product agronomists are looking at that, trying to see if there's some varietal differences there, because that's gonna be real key to figuring this thing out. Just to show you how committed we are to this, how big a deal this is, Jay, our, our local team on the sales side actually bought hot wire and put it up around this thing because the deer were bad in there. Oh. And we're making sure they don't wreck this impact plot. <laughs> And and our our rep over there, Aaron Lipkeman, has been actively working to make sure he gets the the water hemp out of that field. You were talking about late season water hemp. This field had some water hemp pressure, and so we've been physically making sure uh, Aaron has that that field is clean. That's how much we want to get answers to this thing. So Matt, you know how that's going to work. I I, I I hate to burst your bubble, but. You know, we find that with with white mold, as we think we have a great white mold field, a white mold hellhole. Yeah. And, and, and we plant a plot there and we scare it away. So that that may be the best That's, cure for for red crown yeah. rot. So just be prepared to be disappointed, I, Matt. I, I, I would agree with you. I mean, that usually works that way for diseases. It usually works that way. You know, back in the day when, you know, we would have done wireworm plots, Jay, that was always a great way to get rid of wireworms was to put a plot in. But. I would say that red crown is appearing in this this impact location. We've seen it there and and probably some hints at some differences. Stay tuned on that one. One other thing I should mention is that because because we're real interested in the seed treatment side of things um, and because of some things we had picked up on vibes, we had picked up on some of from some other people in the industry. We did a max rate Olivo that that Lipgaman seed agency that I mentioned. Um, we can't legally double the rate, or, you know, what we consider the high rate of Olivo, but we can 1.7 it, if I remember correctly. And so we did that and we dropped that in strips. I think Aaron did that on about 10 to 11 folks uh, across the Pike County area, you know, hundreds and hundreds of acres repeating strips of this max rate versus our high rate of Olivo and just hoping that maybe there'll be something there too that we can come up with that might be a management option. So, Matt, the in Ashley, you know, the good news is thus far we haven't seen red yeah. crown rod Minnesota I, I, or Iowa for that matter. Like I said, I, I've got this one field I'm I'm suspicious of, uh, you know, and, and you know, I, I, I refer back to um, my days when SDS was sudden death syndrome was a Illinois problem and and there was a lot of uh, media about it it was interesting because the entomologist at the time about 20 years ago had said you know the uh, fusarium virgiliform the the pathogen for SDS had been you know, had supposedly been identified in the soils in Minnesota but we hadn't seen the disease yet yeah. uh, manifest itself and then you know about you know, it took about five or 10 years before we started to see it here. So, you know, for me, you know, the thing I wonder is, um, to, you know, I, I make reference to Iowa, they haven't seen it yet. Uh, you know, I, I think I remember hearing one of your podcasts with the Illinois team saying, you know, 
for a couple of years, maybe folks just thought it was SDS down there. Uh, yeah. And actually it was, it was, it was red crown rot. So I think, you know, it, it's, it's trying to be vigilant and be prepared for folks up this way. So we don't get caught flat footed, not to just, you know, uh, sound the warning sirens and get everybody to panic and yep. give farmers yet another thing to worry about. Um, but the reality is it's probably only a matter of, of time, Matt. So I think this is very, it's very helpful. Uh, you know, so uh, help us out. And I'm now I'm going to put you on the spot, Matt. Uh, okay. And, and it's kind of you know that you said it's kind of uncomfortable area. So okay. And, and so we have a farmer, and he knows there's no promises or guarantees. But what would be your best recommendations on you know three or four things that that they should do to try to manage the disease and not plant beans is not one of the uh, <laughs> answers. Oh. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, so, I mean, I, I think one thing is I have to consider where they are in the state, right? So there is an epicenter and it definitely is around Pike County. And, and we know the disease can be seen up in the suburbs of Chicago all the way down as you cross the border into Kentucky, um, maybe like a third of the state that it's been spotted in at least. And that, however close you get to that epicenter probably changes the management rec recommendations. In some portions of Pike County, if you can't get it under control, I may tell you to go to corn, even though you said I can't say that, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, for everybody else, I think it's going to be vigilance. It's going to number one, it's going to be if you see something funny instead of just writing it off, let's get somebody out there to look at it. And we are going to conduct a survey um, in my part of the world that you have done a survey. We're going to try to conduct an even more extensive one, at least for the district I belong in to get a feel for distribution and where it is. Um, so I, I think I think that's one thing is if you see something funny, get it identified, figure out what's what's going on. And then I think um, definitely these are all shots in the dark, right? But definitely, I think um, even though I don't at the moment feel like in Pike County that our high rate of Olivo is enough to hold it in check. I think in Pike County, if anything, it's going to be that max rate for the people outside in that new area, I'm probably going to tell you to do that high rate of Olivo because I'm thinking about that nematode management and peanuts, right, to, to try and manage things. Um, maybe some hints of, of experience from all their colleagues in the state who feel like where it's just creeping in, they see some help, some benefit from Olivo, probably going to toss that one, one out there. And then I, I'm going to be talking about it, it probably uh, it, paying attention to how wet the soil is. That's a real flimsy answer. Watching out for those green bridges, that kind of thing. Um, making sure I keep lots of other weeds under control so that we are reducing weed pressure that might produce an environment that promotes that kind of humidity and moisture in the soil, or maybe might help harbor that disease and get it started. Um, and then I, I think that that's probably it's probably the the big thing that I'm going down. Those are probably the recommendations at the moment. And you can see again why we're we're trying to do a little bit more work to come up with some answers. So it's um, always a challenge when you were on the front line dealing with one, a, a brand new disease. And of course, all of us always want a silver bullet. Yeah. And and so it's you know as you said as you said, and I think and I think farmers 
are, are always very understanding when you say, okay, we're learning about this. Here's what I would suggest would probably be some of our best strategies for uh, managing the, the disease, Matt. And so, uh, you know, I think stay tuned, uh, everybody. And as, as Matt said, be, be vigilant. But uh, Ashley, I think we probably ought to bring this uh, episode to a close. Maybe you can share some of the uh, key uh, takeaways um, before then we prompt Matt for any th additional things he'd like to uh, share with folks. Absolutely. So some key takeaways for me that, that I benefited from was the acknowledgement that this is an early season onset infection like SDS, where that infection happens as the plant is young, um, and then you would see symptoms subsequent to that into the growing season. But if we were going to institute any management, that would need to happen in the form of a seed treatment variety selection, um, mitigating drainage issues, perhaps compaction issues on the farm, um, other stresses, weed pressures, um, the green bridge, which can, um, you know, that's a cover crop that's yet to be terminated um, in most cases. And that that's something that can can increase our soil moisture, creating that cover um, and change that environment of the field. So mitigating some of, of those farm factors, um, but also instituting variety selection right now in terms of um, varieties with, with um, soybean cyst nematode uh, protection in the form of a PI-88 or a peaking, depending on our geography, um, is something to think about. I want to reiterate too, you know, as we're speaking to our listeners, we aren't speaking to you in terms of management for today or next year. This is something that that we want to educate you on in the acknowledgement that this could be something we see in the future in our area um, to give you a first look at what uh, the Illinois team is experiencing and, and how they're learning and managing the disease. Um, and then the other takeaway um, that I had is I really appreciated your um, acknowledgments of the association between peanuts and soybeans and that there's some things that we can take from the red crown rod experience in peanuts and then apply those to help accelerate our learning of management in soybeans. Um, so that was, that was um, really beneficial to me to understand. So those are my key points, Jay. Well, Ashley, you did a, a great job. I got a, a couple of additional things. And, and so one being the critical importance of identification. And so, you know, Matt shared how you, you could potentially confuse it with uh, SDS or, or brown stem rot. But his comment was, if you dig those plants up and you're going to look at the stem, you have that that reddish, that red, reddish brown discoloration, the lower portion of the stem, but that you have these little red balls, whatever we we them mad if, if those are uh, fruiting bodies or whatever but that's kind of a d distinction between it and an SDS and, and then the, I think the other thing Ashley and, and you said it so well it's a nice tie into what I said earlier on in the show about guys going out in their bean fields and digging up plants in and looking at the roots for the presence of, of soybean cyst nematode and, and my point being that you, you talked about SCN management managing those sources of resistance and if a person is digging up some roots and seeing lots of cysts on those roots and they haven't been rotating their sources of resistance, then perhaps it's time to incorporate another um, source of resistance, regardless of whether or not it's managing for a concern for red crown rot, but just overall uh, good management, Ashley. So I, uh, again, I think that identification is a, is a key thing. You know, I, I'd like to, you know, ask Matt, you know, anything else you'd like to comment on. But but listeners, I also want, want you to know that that Matt, and I'm quoting Matt off of Twitter this morning here, is in awe of this disease because he, he, he said this. He said, the deadly awesomeness 
of how fast fields can melt down from red crown rot. So he had he posted some pictures out in, in on Twitter. So he is kind of in awe of the disease. You know, hopefully that won't uh, you know uh, cloud his ability to try to manage it and put <laughs> stop on the disease, Matt. So after that, what else can, would you like to share with our listeners, Matt? And, and maybe I, I am in some resources. You know, what's that? Yeah, I am in all the disease, Jay. It is I, it, it is hard for an agronomist not to just be blown away uh, by how incredibly tough a disease can be. You are right. I, that is a quote from me. Um, I, I think one of the points you made earlier, Jay, is really important. So it's a new disease. And let's think about tar spot, for instance, right? Being a new disease to the area. And when tar spot was a new disease, one of the things that we mentioned, and I didn't mention this when you guys asked me about management, but you did kind of mention this, Jay, was thinking about managing all the other things that could potentially piggyback with a disease like this and make it worse. So let's let's be especially vigilant that we're doing a good job picking out those beans that have a good Phytophthora score, you know, that have an RPS 1K or 1C gene up front, um, that we're making sure that we're, you know, down in my part of the world watching out for frog eye scores and your part of the world watching out for white mold, just all these other things that could potentially piggyback with the thing and make it worse. So we may not have specific management recommendations for this disease, but let's uh, let's kind of take care of all the stuff that could take that problem and could blow it up even further if it paired up with it. So, and thank you uh, again, both of you again for the invite. I love visiting with you guys and it's been a joy to, to get to know you. Well, thank you, Matt. No, we appreciate all the information and listeners are tired of hearing me say this, but you know, I've got, I think I'm going to have a three ring binder full of notes that I take from, from the podcast because we learned so much from our guests, Matt. And of course, you're no different as well. And so, um, listeners, it's probably time to close out the show. You can follow the podcast on Twitter. The show handle there is at YFO Agronomy, or you can follow me personally. My handle is at SeedZeke. Um, listeners, how can they follow uh, you, Ashley? Oh, you can find me on Twitter at Ashley Storby. And Matt, how can uh, listeners uh, follow you and also tell them how to find your YouTube video on Red Crown um, Run? Yeah, so you can follow me at, at Matt underscore Montgo on the social media platform formerly known as Twitter or <laughs> oh, now known as X, whatever <laughs> it is. I don't even get me started on that. If you want to go to YouTube, type in Red Crown Rot plus Matt Montgomery plus Pioneer and you'll probably have the video pop up. So. But whatever you do, folks, listen to the podcast first before you go to the YouTube video. Otherwise, you might not even be interested in listening to Ashley and Matt and I talk. And then you miss out on, on all the local updates because it is extremely, extremely well done, Matt. I can't thank you enough for the information and for joining us today. Listeners, you can join uh, Ashley and me on our next podcast as we share information uh, and more updates from the field. And our intent, I think, Ashley, is probably to try talk about uh, corn rootworm management and extended diapause. We have reps out there putting some sticky traps out and we can maybe provide folks with an update. So uh, listeners, thank you very much for listening. This has been episode 34, 34, 44, almost to 50. Are we going to call that the golden? Are we going to call that the golden oh, podcast? I think we got to call could. it the golden podcast. <laughs> Your field is our office. Be safe and stay healthy. Thank you for listening.